So Lord, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you for your word, which is rich and vibrant, and your spirit that guides us into your truth. And we invite that today. We pray that you would lead and guide us by your Holy Spirit in a very unique way uh, during our time of uh, revelation and response as we see you revealed through the words of Scripture, as you reveal yourself through your Holy Spirit, and as we respond out of that, Lord. Captivate our hearts, we pray, and we commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we are in Romans chapter 9, and I would encourage you to uh, turn there as we step into uh, the first part of that chapter. Uh, When I was a kid, I was uh, probably a normal kid. I think most kids, uh, well, normal in most ways, maybe, I don't know what even that means, but but normal in the sense of of really kind of passionate about fairness, right? Now, for those of you who are parents of young kids, you probably know this only too well, that fairness is a really big deal to kids, right? Right? How often do you hear that phrase, that's not fair, right? Okay, how often do we say that phrase, even as adults, or at least we sometimes think that? I remember growing up with my younger, or my older brothers, a year older than me, and when there was like one piece of food left, like a, that last bun of mom's fresh baking, or that last piece of pie, and mom said, well, you guys have to share that. And then the thing that I would always say, or one of us would always say was, okay, you cut, I pick, Right? Because that was the deal. Because you know then if, he's gonna, if, if I'm going to pick, he's going to cut it really fairly, right down the middle, right? Because it's all about being fair, right? So as kids, I think we're kind of hardwired that way, and we think that way. And even as we come into adulthood, we still have a tendency to think about fairness in a certain way. And we think, well, that's, the world needs to be fair. And yet, oftentimes we have said, whether it's to children or other people, life's not fair. Right, And we'll see in our text today that, that sometimes we, we come to Scripture and we come to our understanding of who God is with that same mindset of trying to think of, okay, well, God, of course, is fair. God is definitely going to be fair. He's a good God. He's going to be fair. And, and yet, as we will see in Scripture, I don't think fairness seems to rank all that high in God's priorities. I really don't. And I think if we're true to the Word, we will see that that, in fact, is not something that is at the forefront of what God intends for us or wants us to understand about who he is. And so today we will focus on on chapter 9, but we're going to begin this unique section of chapters 9 to 11 in in Romans. And as uh, I've read different commentators and even think about this myself, it it almost seems to make more sense to go from chapter 8 straight into chapter 12. Like if we just kind of skipped over 9 to 11 and kind of went right from 8 to 12, it, that would almost make more sense. Chap, up until chapter 8, it's Paul's talking about salvation, and then from chapter 12 to at least 15, he's talking about ethics. How do you live now out of that? Okay, So you could go right from the very end of chapter 8, where it says, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord, straight to Romans 12.1, therefore I urge you in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Wouldn't that just make really good sense? But no, in between we have these interesting chapters of 9 to 11 that may seem out of place, but it's like Paul is saying before he gets to the ethics part, he's addressing in many ways the elephant in the room. And the elephant in the room for a lot of these people was this question of, well, what about Israel? What about the Jewish people? You know, there would have been all these Gentiles in the room in Rome that 
this letter was written to. These people who are coming alive in faith, who are seeing and experiencing this truth of the gospel of who Jesus is. And they were probably reflecting on that and kind of looking around and going, you know, there's a lot of our Gentiles here, but, but what about the Jews, the Jewish people? What, what about them, Paul? What about your own people? Why is it that they're rejecting this gospel? Why is it that this Jesus is being kind of pushed away from them? Why is it that the synagogues are divided with conflict because of this? You might wonder, or you might, they might have been wondering these questions and asking these questions. And so it begs the question for us, how do we think about this corporate people of God's promise, the people of Israel? And in Romans 8, as we saw, it's this beautiful promise and truth that Gentiles can also take hold of Israel's blessing. But in Romans 9 to 11, we have these chapters that affirm again that these blessings are still there for the original audience of Israel. As Paul's addressing this question, he also, though, raises many other questions, big questions along the way. Has God forgot his promises to Israel? How do we understand the sovereignty of God? What does that mean? And then the question that I started with, is God fair? All these questions surface in these texts, and even in the text that we'll, we'll look at here today. So let's begin by looking at verses 1 to 5, and we see Paul grieving for his people Israel. We get a, a quick glimpse, in a way, of the Jewishness, again, of Paul, and the Jewishness of our Christian faith, where it comes from, the heritage, the roots of where it was established. And so Paul says in 9, verse 1 to 5, he says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. He's really making a point here. He's saying, this is serious, okay? Believe me. And then he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. You know, I've often said that one of the great injustices of life is you can't choose your family. And I, I love that story that came out of the UK years ago where this teenage kid actually was suing his parents for bringing him into the world without his consent. <laughs> true story. But it's true, like you can't actually choose your family. And so Paul here is reflecting on his family, his tribe, and he's saying, my heart grieves for my family. My heart grieves for my tribe. My heart grieves for my people. And he's, he's, he's talking about the anguish that is in, the, in him because of the fact that they don't see what is right in front of them. They don't see the Messiah Jesus that is the fulfillment of all of these prophecies and all these promises that they would have known in their Jewish tradition. As I read this text again, it made me almost think of Jesus coming into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday that we reflected on a number of weeks ago where Jesus is riding on the donkey, and if you remember that text, how Jesus weeps over this city. And he weeps over this city because they were missing what was right in front of them, of who he was and the peace that he had for them. And in maybe a similar way, Paul here is weeping over his people, and he's got this deep love for his people. And he even says he's willing to take their judgment that they might experience the blessing of God. Eugene Peterson, in, in the message translation or paraphrase, he says, if there were any way I could be cursed by the Messiah so they could be blessed by him, I'd do it in a minute. 
is what Paul is saying. And it makes me wonder, how much do we weep over the lost? You know, Bill Hogg is a missiologist with our MB family, and he's often made the statement that he says it this way. He says, we've lost the lostness of lost people. We've lost the lostness of lost people. Because of God's judgment, because of the eternal consequences, because of the reality of heaven and hell, and Paul, all of Paul's teaching that he's going through in the early chapters of, of Romans, which has felt kind of heavy at times as he talks about the reality of our sin and the consequences of that. But then he talks about what Christ has done to cover that. But Paul hadn't lost sight of the lostness of the people of Israel and their need for Jesus. You know, Genesis 12, again, is this beautiful text of God saying to Abraham, I want you to go, and I want you to take the blessing of God, my blessing, to the nations of the earth. And in doing that, I will set you apart and establish a people. And that's the beginning of Israel. And God says to Abraham, I want you to take this message Take this hope, take this promise, take this blessing to the nations and the families of the earth through this people that I will create for you. It's the people of Israel. And Paul is saying, I haven't forgotten these people of Israel. I haven't forgotten, but they have forgotten what their mission actually was. What God had set them apart for. What he had called them to. And I don't doubt that there was a lot of people, probably Jewish people, who blamed Paul or pointed to Paul and said, you know, you've lost sight of where you came from. You've lost sight of your tribe. You've lost sight of your Jewishness, that he abandoned his Jewish roots. And yet Paul is saying, no, 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 I'm not anti-Torah. I'm not anti-Israel. You don't have to renounce your heritage, but we all need Jesus. That's the point. Jews and Gentiles, churchgoers and non-churchgoers alike. And even as I read this text again, it reminds me that for those who grow up in the church, who those who, uh, you know, being part of a church family just becomes mechanical and routine. It's a warning to each one. For those who have a long history in that way, that it's not a certain name or heritage or family lineage that saves you. Paul is saying, no, 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 it's not about that. It's about, do you follow Jesus? Do you know him? So one commentator says, uh, he says it this way, he says, eventually Paul hopes that his kinfolk will notice that these God-worshipping, Messiah-shaped, spirit-filled Gentiles are the vanguard for the promises that properly belong to them. In other words, maybe these Jews, these people of Israel, will actually see the spirit coming alive in the Gentiles and seeing this incredible community of faith and go, what is it that you've got? Well, you know what they've got? They've got what you're supposed to have and be bringing to the rest of the world. And so Paul is saying, is, is grieving for them because they have lost sight of this truth. So that's how this chapter begins. And then in the next section, in verse 6 and following, he begins to reflect on God's faithfulness to his promise. And also on God's sovereignty. Meaning God's supreme power and authority that God has. And so we read in verse 6 to 8. Paul says, it's not as though God's word has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. 
In the New Living Translation, and I'm reading today from the NIV, but in the New Living Tra- uh, Translation, it poses it as a question. It says, has God failed to fulfill his promise to Israel? No, for not all who are born into the nation of Israel are truly members of God's people. So Paul is pointing to this truth that there's something different going on here. That it's not about family lineage, but he goes on to teach that it's about the children of the promise, not physical descent. And he uses this analogy or this teaching about Abraham and Isaac, and he makes reference to Ishmael. And he points to this lineage of salvation, but he says it goes through those who believe, not just Isaac's descendants. And then he goes on and he gives another example, Jacob and Esau. These twins born of the same mother, born of the same father. One is the older, one is the younger. Born at the same time, or relatively the same time, and how the younger will now serve the older. Let's keep reading in verse 11 as it talks about these twins. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works but by him who calls, she was told, Rebecca the mother, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, now this is speaking of the people of Egypt, or the people of Israel coming out of slavery in Egypt and Pharaoh's hardened heart. It says, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. And he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who is formed, uh, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? two things, key things at least, that come out of this. One encouraging, the other somewhat unsettling. First thing that I would point to is that this gift, this blessing of being children of the promise is for all people by faith. By God's initiative, not ours. But Paul is saying not all Israel is Israel. Meaning not all Israel is truly Israel in terms of the children of the promise. People of faith, followers of Christ who understand this Messiah. They've abandoned that. And just being part of the lineage of Israel doesn't save you, is what he's saying. Even though God's promise is still going through Israel. But he's saying it's about changed hearts. It's open to Israel and all others. In fact, even earlier in Romans chapter 2, many weeks ago when we looked at this text, verse 28 and 29, says it this way, For you are not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it is a change of heart produced by the Spirit. And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God and not from people. So Paul's just retelling this truth, retelling this story. If you look at Galatians 6, when he, when he was teaching and writing a letter to the church in Galatia, he said a similar thing. He said, it doesn't matter whether we have been circumcised or not. What counts is whether we have been transformed into a new creation. And may God's peace and mercy be upon all who live by this principle. They are the new people of God. 
They are the children of the promise. Not all Israel is Israel. Well, the second thing that I see in this text that we read is is that it's God's prerogative, that God is sovereign. It's not of our doing, but also that reality that God doesn't always play fair, or so it seems. We see Paul reflecting on that and teaching about some of the Old Testament stories, some of this sweep of history, and, and referencing those things and putting them into context. And even today, we sometimes think, okay, why is it that I was created this way? As people struggle with different things in their lives and walk with different limps, they go, why is this my lot? This isn't fair. Why do I have this? Some of the very same questions that come out of this text as Paul is doing this teaching and this idea that we have that somehow God has to be fair. It says how God hardened Pharaoh's heart to not let the people go. We think that's odd, that seems cruel, but then we also have to remember that Pharaoh wasn't a neutral agent. He was an arrogant tyrant. He was a brutally cruel. He had a rebellious heart to begin with, and it was like God just nudged him further along the path. We also see that God chose Jacob and not Esau, the younger deceiver, Jacob, and how God loved Jacob and hated Esau. What do we do with that? This truth that Paul is teaching, and we see that in the story of God, and we go, okay, how do we understand that to be fair? And yet Paul says, God is the potter. Cannot the potter do what he wants to do with the clay? So this section inevitably raises up big questions for us about God's fairness. How can God harden the hearts of some so that they will reject him and then judge them for rejecting him? What role does our free will have anyways? Isn't God about fairness? If you look at Matthew chapter 20, and we don't have time to go into the story in detail, but Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God and the character of God, and he tells this parable. He tells a parable about a farmer who owned a vineyard, and he calls out workers throughout the day. And all day long, he goes to the marketplace, and he gets more workers, and he sends them to work in the vineyard. And right up until the very end of the day, and some people go just for the last hour. And then he calls them all back in and he pays them their wages and he pays them all the same wages, the same day wages. What do people say? That's not fair. Like, that's not fair. What are you doing? Like, these people only worked an hour. We've been here all day. And Jesus' response is, what is it to you if I'm generous to some, more generous to others? And it starts to challenge us in this thinking of, okay, God is always fair. And we see, no, not necessarily. As we understand this text, we see that it pushes against some of the things that we maybe think to be true or obvious. And so this section, (coughs) as we know, or many of you would know, is used by many to teach of predestination. This idea that God has chosen some for salvation and not others. Which is understandable, even reasonable as we look at this text. But I would join with the many others who point to this text as speaking to the corporate body of Israel more than individuals. That his choice, his election is of Israel, is is consistent, even in the mix of belief and unbelief with Israel as a people. And so I would argue that the primary focus is corporate, not individual, which is consistent throughout much of Romans. And yet there is an individual component, as we saw in the Old Testament texts and examples that were given. 
In the sermon study guide that is provided for you at the back, I've listed all kinds of texts that, that point to God's election and predestination. And some of those texts that you can see that teach that and, and, and point that out in Scripture. But also in that guide, you'll see many texts that point to free will and our ability to choose, just like in Romans 10, verse 9, which we'll see even next weekend as we get into this text. Romans 10, verse 9 says, Paul is continuing to teach in this section. He says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So this choice that you have, this decision that you make, this willingness to believe and to commit to the Lord Jesus. And then there are texts that seem to point to both aspects of this. And if you look in in, uh, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9, it says, In their hearts humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. Hmm. How do we think about that? Where it's like, yeah, we plan our course and we have the freedom, but the Lord determines the steps. And then we look further on in, uh, in Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, another text that seems to point to both of these. Where Paul is teaching, he says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Do your work in this. But then he says, For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to fulfill his good purpose. And it seems to point to both of those again. So here we have in Scripture a paradox, a mystery, something that is really hard to explain. Where we have these seemingly opposite truths pulling in two different directions. And my contention is is that the, the truth is found in the tension of these. You know, some are comfortable with this paradox that there is, well, yeah, that God is sovereign and that we have free will. And others have a real challenge resting in that mystery. Others need to lock it down and have much more defined details and much more clear explanation. And and I get that. People come at today's text in different ways with different conclusions and understandable conclusions. But as I was thinking about this text, I understand that there are those diverse perspectives, but I want to be clear and summarize where I land on these things. Let me just say four things. As I come to this text. First of all, Israel still has a special place in God's plan. We'll see that in chapter 11 in a few weeks. That Israel still has a place in God's plan. That God's promise continues through them. Though not all Israel are true Israel, children of God. If not by faith. The second part, which I think is important to put with the first part, is that God's gift of grace is expanded to all who believe. But there are others who are now grafted in, as it says in in Romans chapter 11, which we'll see. Grafted into Israel's promise. That Israel has this unique place, but that it is broader than that. That it is, we are grafted in. And and Paul says in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, he says, Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called the uncircumcised heathens by the Jews, who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel. And you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. So this expanding grace that is given beyond Israel, as we are grafted into this promise, as God continues to keep his promise. 
In fact, even in our text, and if you look further on in chapter 9 and verse 25 and 26, Paul is quoting from Hosea and he, how God even spoke about this in the Old Testament. He says, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. Meaning this promise goes beyond Israel. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people there, they will be called children of the living God. So God's promise continues. But his grace expands to all who believe. Thirdly, what I would say, my contention as I come to this, is God's grace and judgment don't always seem fair. I don't think we should look for fairness. That's hard to swallow sometimes. I don't think God's as concerned with fair as we are. God's ways are not our ways. And we will not always understand the mind of God. And fourthly, I believe that God is sovereign and we have free will. That scripture teaches very clearly that both of those are true. That God is sovereign in terms of having supreme authority and supreme power and that we have free will. We have the freedom even to reject him and that the truth is found in the tension of these. So where does this leave us? I think it leads us to worship. You know, we like to make God in our image. I think we do that more than we realize. We like to systematize God, categorize God, analyze God, make God in understandable parts. We want to explain things with certainty. We want to lock it down, nail it down, make it black and white, make it so understandable that we can teach it to anybody. And, and when we do that, I go, that is actually no God at all. That is a God that is made in our image. Or we break God down into bite-sized nuggets of truth for the day, kind of like a bunch of self-help tips. And that's who God is. But you know what this text does? It causes us to step back and to see the wonder of God and the beauty of God and the mystery of God, realizing that his ways are not our ways. That we cannot fully understand the mind of Christ nor the love of Christ, but that it should lead us to worship. I really think Romans forces us to look at God's big story. All of Scripture. Romans forces us to look at this sweep of God's incredible story and develop a big theology. To begin to grasp how big God really is. We need a theology of God that is massive, that leaves us, leaves us in awe of God's power, His character, and His grace beyond what we can even explain. Theology that includes God's wrath and judgment and justice, God's wisdom, God's love, God's Son and Jesus, and His Holy Spirit. You know, not, the goal of our teaching through Romans is not that we would understand now clearly all the, the theological challenges that Paul presents, or that any one of us are such great preachers that we can do that, but that we would understand that our God is actually too small. and That we need to understand God in a bigger way. We need to meet this God who is worthy of our worship, who is worthy of thanksgiving, who is worthy of our praise, who is worthy of our trust, and who is worthy of our faith. Because he is found in the person of Jesus Christ. May God find us faithful. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your grace to us. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for your word. And God, I thank you that you are a God who we can understand 
in order to have salvation, that we can see who you are, that you even sent your son Jesus to live among us, that we can see the physical evidence and the embodiment of who you are. You've given us your Holy Spirit that dwells within us and among us and gives us insight and knowledge as to who you are and reveals truth to us. We have that, and these are incredible gifts. But God, I also thank you that you are a God who, at the end of it all, we still go, wow, there's so much I don't understand. There's so much that still doesn't totally make sense. There's still so much that I cannot explain about you. And God, I thank you for that. That you are a God of mystery and wonder. That we are not just called to scrutinize and analyze, but to glorify, give you the glory and to worship. And may we be people of worship and people of faith, trusting in this living God, this mysterious God, this sovereign God who loves us so much. So we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.